Today on Peace Talks Radio, we explore the idea of peace journalism, a call for reporters and news organizations to make changes in how they cover conflict. Peace journalism is when reporters and editors make choices that can create an atmosphere that's conducive to peace. We'll hear from a U.S. professor leading workshops around the globe on peace journalism. Do we report it in such a way that it exacerbates conflict, that it inflames violence, or do we report it in such a way uh, that it does not? A Ugandan journalist who took the courses then helped spread the project in her homeland. Why do you want to put more fuel on fire? Because at the end of it all, it is the innocent citizen who will suffer. And a radio producer who calls for news organizations to create a peace beat. To tell the story truthfully in its full perspective, not just be stenographers to the powerful. That's all today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how we can reduce conflict with others in our homes, schools, workplaces, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. We also look at the work of peacemakers today and throughout history. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we pose some questions about whether the manner in which journalists cover war and peace has something to do with achieving peace and reducing conflict. Or do common conventions of reporting instead inflame conflict and omit viable nonviolent options for resolving conflicts? And can severe hate speech and alarmist propaganda that threaten lives in developing nations be quelled with targeted training? Some people are calling for an emphasis on peace journalism or the development of a peace beat in news organizations. Our conversation today starts with Steve Youngblood the director for the Center for Global Peace Journalism at Park University in Parkville, Missouri. He's traveled the world giving peace journalism workshops in Kenya, the Republic of Georgia, and Uganda. He wrote a book about his Uganda experience and offered us this definition of peace journalism. Like many social science sorts of terms, there's more than one definition. The one that I like to use talks about uh, that peace journalism is when reporters and editors make choices that can create an atmosphere that's conducive to peace. So when we define peace journalism, it's almost easier to talk about the opposite. And the opposite is simply the traditional journalism that sensationalizes violence, that incites conflict and violence, and that doesn't consider the consequences of its own reporting. And so peace journalism seeks to counter those things. In terms of what they report and how it's reported, and let's start with the what to report. Uh, what do peace journalists report on that others don't or mainstream media may not? Well, I would say this, that, that for the most part, that peace journalists are reporting on the same things that mainstream journalists are reporting on. So it's not that we're ignoring violence or ignoring conflict. M- more often than not, It's about the way that we report that. So do we report it in such a way that it exacerbates conflict, that it inflames violence, or do we report it in such a way uh, that it does not? And as far as what we're reporting that others might not report, uh, I would say that that might fall in the category of giving peacemakers a voice or at least a proportional voice to those who are advocating conflict. I think it also means giving a voice to the voiceless. 
uh, because marginalized people, as we know, as social science tells us, uh, that marginalized people are more likely to strike out, to behave violently, and so on. So those are the things that peace journalism seeks to do. Well, why is this happening? Why does mainstream journalism, or what some are calling war journalism, why do they tilt the news that way? Well, I think some of it is habit. Um, Some of it is uh, the prevailing thought in the media that uh, what we do has to be sensational, that spicing things up and making them sensational uh, sells more papers and and, uh, gets higher ratings for broadcasts. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I think that's part of the reason. I think part of the reason is laziness, that it's easier simply to report that kind of propaganda. Part of it, too, is that uh, newsrooms these days have fewer and fewer resources. And so the resources, the ability of a Woodward and Bernstein to go out and spend months and months and months reporting these things, well, that, that that's not going to happen much anymore. And it's because newsrooms are smaller and smaller and smaller. I know my local newspaper here, the Kansas City Star, its newsroom is half the size that it was just a few years ago. So this limits the kind of enterprise reporting that I think reporters really need to do to fulfill their watchdog function. Hmm. So in, in essence, it's just too complicated. If you expose too many sides... It doesn't resemble a sporting event that the audience can grasp easily, uh, two distinct sides, one good and one evil. And, and I think that's part of it, too. It's, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier story to tell, and it's a lot more compelling story. The U.S., uh, Bush versus Saddam, uh, that was even a, a, a Newsweek headline, uh, Bush versus Saddam, who will win? Well, you know, if, if there's ever been an oversimplification, that's it, right? It's 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 taking something that's multifaceted and complex and boiling it down to something that a fifth grader could understand. So then what are peace journalists inspired to do differently? Well, I, I hope that peace journalists are in, inspired by the Iraq example, by the examples in sub-Saharan Africa and, and elsewhere, that we're inspired to take a look at the consequences of our reporting. Much more with Park University professor Stephen Youngblood later, but now we want to talk a bit with Gloria Laker, a journalist in Uganda who took some of the peace journalism workshops that Professor Youngblood taught there, where conflict has been a consistent part of the landscape for decades now since Ugandan independence from Britain in 1962. Laker both took the workshops and then joined Professor Youngblood in presenting them to hundreds of other journalists and media owners across Uganda in 2010 and 11. Gloria Laker spoke with us via Skype from her home in Kampala, Uganda. Before actually sitting in Stephen Youngblood's class, I must say my reporting were very sensational. I wasn't, I wasn't looking at helping or minimizing harm. I was looking mostly at uh, how many headline stories can I strike in a week. So I must take you back to the northern Uganda conflict. I was based in Gulu, my home district, and I was this young journalist full of energy, courage. So I would write without caring. I want to give you an example of uh, the words which I used to use a lot. I used to call, sometimes, you know, the, the political leaders would issue statements and say, 
I'm giving the, Reb, the, 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 the LRA terrorists only two weeks to surrender. And I would use such a word in my, in my news article or in any communication, not knowing I was actually causing the conflict, even in, in fueling the conflict. Because each time the rebels listen or see such a line, what they do is they just go and attack a school, abduct more children, or carry ambushes. So after sitting in Stephen Youngblood's class, I realized that I was doing uh, more damage to my community. I realized the need to change my language or how to frame my stories. Let me ask you in that example that you gave then. So the trigger word, as it were, was terrorists, right? Yes. And so what would you have been using to replace it that would have been fair to the conflict um, and maybe less inflammatory? Okay, the word that I change, that I would change, especially when I see such a word like terrorist, sincerely, what I would do is call them LRA rebel fighters. That way I was able to engage both the rebels and the government into talks. And I was able to, in, to even interview some of the, the rebels, talk to them. I remember meeting some of them in UK and in Juba in southern Sudan. And they would say, we will give you an interview because you are a journalist. You don't just take one side. So I think using the word changing from terrorists to rebel fighters kind of calmed the situation down in my reporting as a journalist. There is a list of things uh, that you used in the training that uh, reporters should avoid doing in uh, their coverage of conflict or their coverage of elections. It was a rather long list, but can you remember some of the other things? Yes, I can, yes. Um, one of the things which we always preach in class is that avoid calling names. Yeah, name calling. If yeah, name calling, yes. If the president called the other one a lizard, um, you as a journalist, you don't need to go the other side to the opposition side and say the president has called you a lizard because the opposition side will say, okay, then he is a monkey. Then you rush back as a journalist and say, he called you a monkey. Then this one will again use a different word. So we tell them to avoid name calling. And then mm -hmm. we tell them, avoid making a bad situation worse. That's interesting uh, because I think uh, Americans listening to our interview will think of their own elections and their own media coverage. And if one candidate called another uh, a monkey or a bug or a cockroach or something like that, it would be very difficult for a reporter not to report that. Uh, so what what would you say to critics that might say, well, you know, if somebody says it, you really have to report it? Uh, no, no, no. I, I really don't. I still stand by my point. To protect my people, I'm, I'm going to, I'll try to use a different word because that is already very sensational. Mm -hmm. It means to me that uh, the political leader or whoever is talking is trying to use my medium, which in this case the radio, to incite people. So definitely mm -hmm. I stand my point that uh, I will not accept. I'll find a way of you know, harmonizing the whole situation as a journalist. For example, if you already know there is a conflict, why do you want to put more fuel 
on fire. So don't do that because at the end of it all, it is the innocent citizen who will suffer. It is the innocent citizen who suffers, says Ugandan journalist Gloria Laker, speaking to us via Skype from her home in Uganda. The plight of the innocent citizens who suffer from war is one that radio producer David Freudberg wrote is the most important for journalists to keep in mind as they make decisions about how to cover war and conflict. Freudberg produces the public radio series called Humankind, and in 2007 he wrote a commentary article in the public media journal Current calling for news organizations to establish a peace beat, much like they might assign a reporter or team to cover the Pentagon or State Department or a local police department. Freudberg talked to me from his studio near Boston, Massachusetts. It's hard to imagine a more urgent topic for journalistic coverage when war is being waged than people who are innocent bystanders and are either injured or indeed killed. The UN some years ago came out with a stunning uh, calculation. In World War I, the proportion of civilian casualties was estimated at 5%. By World War II, when we saw what happened in Russia, when we saw the Nazi Holocaust, the proportion of civilian casualties had risen to 50% of casualties in war, an amazing increase. Now we're at the range of 90% of casualties in war are civilians. War is primarily an experience of the injuring and sometimes killing of civilians. That's where we are in the 21st century because of technology, because of war tactics, lots of reasons, but that's where we're at. So the fundamental question about war has to be what is its impact on civilians? on the population of people who are not combatants but whose lives are disrupted and sometimes destroyed as a result of war. If we can't get to that question, if that isn't central, every time some government rattles the saber uh, and threatens military conflict, I think we have simply failed in our duty as journalists to capture the full story. You look at the Iraq body count. The latest figure that I've seen is approximately 117,000 within a range where that falls about in the middle of civilians who were killed as a result of the U.S. intervention in Iraq. Um, That's that's just – think of how many 9-11s you'd have to endure to get to 117,000 people killed. That's what we're dealing with. And that's what we need to address. Well, even in 2013, not far from where you're speaking right now, the uh, terrorist bombings at the Boston Marathon, horrible as they were, uh, inflicting pain and damage to maybe around 100 and killing three or four, I think, before it was all done. It seemed like that week, maybe, I was still hearing in Iraq about suicide bombers and and drone attacks in Pakistan, where numbers were multiples of that um, for single events in war. Well, I'm glad that you've kind of brought this subject of terrorist violence uh, 
back to our experience here in the United States because it is a way for those of us who live thousands of miles from the theaters of war uh, in places like Iraq and Afghanistan to tangibly relate to what's going on. I live in the town of Belmont, Massachusetts. That's where my office and studio are located as well. It happens to adjoin by a long border Watertown, Massachusetts, which was the site of the late-night shootout um, when the terrorists alleged to have perpetrated the bombing of the Boston Marathon were uh, encountering the police. Uh, It's a peaceful, uh, safe, uh, beautiful community where I live. And in the middle of the night, I could actually hear uh, some violent sounds going off in the distance in that fateful night in April 2013. Um, I initially thought it must be thundering outside. I looked out to see whether uh, it was raining and it was perfectly dry. And it was only after the fact that I was able to realize that I was literally hearing the grenades going off uh, from these terrorists uh, battling the police in the neighboring town of Watertown, Massachusetts. I have to tell you how deeply disturbing it was to hear that, to realize that the uh, quietude of my neighborhood had been pierced by the reckless act of violence by just two people. I think uh, those of us here in the Boston area are very much still recovering from the trauma of that. And you have to multiply so many times to get to the scale of the violence done in neighborhoods in Iraq and Afghanistan and so many of these other troubled scenes around the world. And it was just a very poignant reminder for me that when we wage war in an era when 90 percent of the people damaged our civilians in war, uh, that we are perpetrating quite an act of violence that will last for a very long time. Well, it's easy to sound insensitive when making this point, but since we are talking about journalistic response to events like this, I mean, when you look at how journalism in America covered the Boston bombings, and I'm not even saying that that was necessarily inappropriate, although it was maybe over the top and very drawn out in some ways as it went on into you know, third and fourth week when the correspondents were standing out in the streets of Boston. Having said that, the juxtaposition of that type of coverage for something on our homeland compared with something that our military is involved with in someone else's homeland is stunning. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming to see lack of empathy, I would say, that journalists seem to have for the kind of destruction that goes on sometimes at the hand of the American military in other countries. The people are nameless. The coverage is brief. Well, it's certainly very understandable and I think appropriate that we would place such high emphasis in media coverage of local events, particularly a tragedy in the case I've been describing at the proportion of what happened around the Boston Marathon in 2013. Um, But the question is really what has been the impact on human rights 
our particular city was was greatly uh, disturbed. Uh, it was shut down. Uh, there was uh, terror in the sense of fear throughout the city because there were these perpetrators who were on the loose. Nobody knew where they were. A police officer had been shot. Uh, improvised explosive devices were being uh, detonated uh, in a civilian neighborhood. Uh, so we can understand that on a local level, and it's appropriate that it receive extensive coverage, particularly because at the time of the height of the coverage, the danger was clear and present. What's hard for us to do, but what we must force ourselves to do, is to understand that the same fear, the same disruption, the same being unsettled in one's personal life is being experienced by people in remote communities where uh, my government and many other governments may be sending weapons, may be sending drones, may be sending armies, uh, that human beings are impacted by it. It must always be brought down to the human scale. And I think sometimes governments try very hard to sanitize the language of war, the descriptions of war, the images of war, in order to minimize the appreciation of the average person of the human scale of it. And this is where I think we as journalists uh, are obligated to step up to the plate and to tell the story truthfully in its full perspective, not just be stenographers to the powerful. More with radio producer David Freudberg and the rest of our guests on our topic of peace journalism when we return on Peace Talks Radio after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. We're online with this show and all of the shows in our series at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Today we're considering the notion of peace journalism with our guests who include Professor Stephen Youngblood, the director for the Center for Global Peace Journalism at Park University in Parkville, Missouri, and creator and facilitator of peace journalism workshops around the world. I think that a lot of times that, that mainstream reporting of conflict tends to present violence and war as the only option or as the most viable option. Now, I'm not saying that as peace journalists it's our job to prevent war, but I do think it's our job to be thorough in presenting the public a buffet of options 
what we should be considering. And certainly that didn't happen in Iraq. And, and one might argue as well that that didn't happen in the, in the run-up to our intervention in Libya. Not that the, that the Libyan intervention was necessarily a bad thing, but I think in, in a democratic society that citizens need to be fully armed with all the information from all the sides so that they can make informed choices about whether a violent uh, conflict is what we want. Well, and I've also seen it referred to that peace journalism tries to um, put some light on structural and cultural causes of violence. It seems like mainstream media will not report on, for example, peacemaking efforts that have avoided a conflict. They'll just wait until there's a conflict, and it's like things are getting hot in this region of the world, and here it is boiled down in a nutshell so our audience can understand it. That, that's very well said. I think that one of, the, one of the tenets of peace journalism is that peace journalism is proactive. Peace journalism is looking for solutions. So as a peace journalist, if I'm in Kenya, for example, and I'm looking ahead to uh, an election when the last election was tremendously violent, I'm being proactive in asking myself, how can my reporting help to create an atmosphere where peace is possible. So rather than just sitting back and waiting for violence to happen, I think that peace journalists are, are, are looking, uh, are digging deeper and looking at systemic causes and looking to address those, or at least to air those grievances. Because as we know, many times it's simply airing and discussing uh, grievances can be very cathartic and can help to let off the steam that otherwise might lead to violence. Can you give examples in your experience or in the literature where, I don't know, peace journalism is working somehow? Well, there are many such examples. Uh, the father of peace journalism, his name is Jake Lynch. He's a professor at the University of Sydney. That He did a study recently where he went to three different countries. And what he did is he showed focus groups two different television stories. So one story was sort of a traditional war-type journalism, and the second was the same story framed as peace journalism, told in a different way. A traditional war sort of story is sensationalized. The, the, the violence is glamorized. The wording is very inflammatory and emotive. So we have brutal massacres. We have bloody... We have all the use of that kind of language. We have peacemakers not given a voice. We have government propaganda presented as facts and so on. So with peace journalism, you don't use that kind of inflammatory language. Uh, the, the violence is mentioned in the peace journalism story, but it's not highlighted. It's not sensationalized. And yes, you present many options in a peace journalism story, options about the way that the conflict can be resolved, rather than just parroting government propaganda that we have to go in and attack these people, smash these people, neutralize them. So rather than that sort of thing, you have uh, others who are proposing nonviolent alternatives. And the results that he found were consistent with all three countries, and that is that the peace journalism approach really does have an impact on audiences, that 
when audiences see the traditional war reporting, their feelings about the story, they tend to think that it's hopeless, that there's no alternative but a violent alternative, that peace is not possible. But when you take the same story and frame it as peace journalism, they tend to be a lot more hopeful that the conflict can be resolved in a non-violent way. They tend to be a lot more hopeful and a lot more informed about options other than violent options to solving the conflict. So I think that there's both practical applications and research that have proven that this peace journalism approach is a good one. People critical of this idea of peace journalism, and maybe traditional journalists would be involved in this debate, but they align it with advocacy journalism or activist news writing or broadcasting that somehow it it bends the journalistic conventions that are, are supposed to promote objectivity. What do you say about this? Peace journalism is activist journalism. So peace journalism is not activist journalism, is not advocacy journalism. Um, indeed, I would say that peace journalism is simply good journalism. So we're not advocating for peace. We are simply presenting to the audience peace as an option. Yes, we still present the violent options. We're still presenting uh, the government propaganda, but we're simply going beyond that. And we're saying, here are some other alternatives. So peace journalists do not openly advocate for peace. What peace journalists do is present peace as an alternative. As we noted earlier, Stephen Youngblood has taken his workshops on peace journalism to many places around the globe, including Uganda about which he wrote the 2012 book Professor Komagum, which in a Ugandan dialect means Professor Lucky. Uganda is, I would call it, a recovering nation. So there was an awful 20-year civil war uh, fought against the Lord's Resistance Army, which uh, most Americans now associate with the film Coney 2012. Uh, And we could talk about that all day. So although the film was flawed, uh, I will say that at least it built some awareness. So uh, this was a country that's had, you know, a history of violence. So Idi Amin was the president during the 70s. I still get asked all the time, well, what's Idi Amin doing? And it would be like asking an American, well, how's President Carter? Uh, Because their ten years overlapped. Idi Amin is dead, but when he was alive, he was certainly not working for peace like President Carter. Absolutely not. But at any rate, so Uganda is a country with a troubled history. Now, the the president, whose name is Museveni, has been president since 1986, uh, has been reelected repeatedly. And if you could see me, I'm, I'm doing reelected with air quotes. Um, uh, the elections uh, are varyingly free, um, somewhat democratic, uh, but certainly not up to uh, a Western European, for example, a Western European standard. I would say at this point that the country is fairly stable. The government, uh, you know, is in control, obviously, of all the parts of the country. There are a number of developmental problems, of course, but I think in some instances that Uganda is making strides. In your book, you tell a couple of stories about how one of your graduates, and even you, I think, uh, do some good through your own journalism, but you also do good by actually helping the victims you are covering. Want to tell us briefly about those stories? Well, I yes, I will, but I'll, I'll preface those comments by saying that these sorts of 
personal interventions as a journalist always trouble me. And perhaps it's because of my very traditional journalism upbringing. I can still see my grizzled old journalism professors wagging their gnarly fingers at me and saying, you know, a journalist never gets involved with the story. And I think that fundamentally that that makes a lot of sense to me. But, you know, when you're in the field, um, it doesn't make quite as much sense. Um, And the example that the book begins with is uh, the story of a young woman who attended one of my workshops in Fort Portal in far western Uganda. And she heard me talk about giving a, a voice to the voiceless, which I emphasize in the seminars. And so after the seminar was through, she decided that she wanted to do one of these voice of the voiceless stories. So what she did was go out and find a story and tell the story of six orphans. And it's it's the worst imaginable story. You couldn't make up something this horrible. So what had happened was that the father was an alcoholic, and the father killed the mother, and then the father killed himself. And these children are left by themselves, in literally in the middle of nowhere. And I know because I've been there. And so they somehow managed to stay alive for 13 months, uh, stealing food, uh, suffering through some medical issues, until Betty, that's the reporter's name, until Betty told their story on the air. And as soon as she told their story, there was an outpouring of support, food, free medical care, clothes, and so on. But the but the kids still didn't have a place to live. And so Betty and her mother, who lived together, decided that they would take in the kids. These are six kids at the times, ages 5 through 14. So she took these kids in. Her story is so incredible that it's a story that I use in every seminar, every workshop. I've told the story a thousand times because I'm so taken with it. Now, my very small part of this is that once the kids were living with Betty, everything was fine except that the kids weren't going to school. Now, in Africa, as in much of the developing world, uh, elementary and secondary education is not free. You have to pay school fees. Betty couldn't afford to pay these school fees. So somebody had to do it. And if it wasn't me, if you would have been there, Paul, or I I think if, you know, 99% of us would have been there and said, well, these kids can't go to school, you know, without even thinking about it, you just blurt out, well, I'll pay for them to go to school. So, I mean, it's not, it's not as magnanimous as it might sound. It, it, to me, it just seemed like a very practical matter. Only later did I think, well, I'm going to tell this story, and now I'm a part of this story. And, and I'll admit that that makes me uncomfortable, but it doesn't make me as uncomfortable as not helping those kids would have made me. So Let me ask you, did Betty continue to report on the family after she essentially adopted them? Well, I wouldn't say re- report, but I will say that um, they had a, for a time that the kids did a Saturday morning broadcast with Betty where they talked about children's issues, they talked about uh, orphans and so on. So I wouldn't call it reporting exactly, but uh, the the kids actually became sort of minor celebrities in Fort Portal. So I so that was I thought that was interesting too. And Betty said she did that that it that it really gave the 
the kids, she thought, uh, a chance to to talk about what they'd been through, and she thought it was it was you know good for them psychologically. I think it's worth talking about that media often become part of the story in conflict regions just by being there. I mean, there are plenty of stories wherein when the press is there, atrocities are less likely to happen because of their presence. Isn't that becoming part of the story as well in a way? Well, I, I, I mean, I think that's true too. The, the, the question is, a traditionalist might say that the difference is that in the instance where the media presence makes a difference, that there's no intent to make a difference. You don't think so? Well, I, I mean, that's what that's what the traditionalists would say. Um, that that they were just there reporting, and oh, by the way, this happened. I I think a peace journalist would look at that claim rather skeptically. Um, certainly, what I did, and and I really shouldn't say I because our friends and family are really chipping in and and helping to uh, to pay these school fees for these kids. So it's a lot more than just me. But at any rate, you know, what we're doing is a much more thoughtful, deliberate act. Uh, now, whether that, what that says about my ethics as a journalist is certainly open to discussion and interpretation. I know in my peace journalism class here at Park University, it's one of the first things that we talk about. And I think it probably makes the students a little uncomfortable. Is your professor unethical? <laughs> but I'm certainly willing to to discuss that and i know that there are traditional journalists who would say you know you're not a journalist that you're just a a, a tarted up social worker um and i'm willing to accept that criticism but it's very practical to discuss it in those workshops it seems to me because if you're going to report on the victims of war then you are going to be faced with those uh, feelings and those circumstances where you're going to have to make that decision and whatever decision you make, you'll have to be able to live with it. I mean, I, I can imagine a circumstance where a reporter might admit to, you know, sharing some food in a refugee camp or something when there were orphans tugging at their pant leg. And if they just put that in the report and make it clear to their audience that this happened, I don't know if it changes the picture of their objectivity, but at least it again, achieve some transparency? Well, I wouldn't disagree with you, but I think the traditionalists would. The traditionalists would say, when you give that $20 bill or that morsel of food, that you're inserting yourself into the story and that you've lost your objectivity. Can a reporter embedded with a military unit sharing meals and maybe maybe trading gum and cigarettes remain objective through that experience? Ah, see, there therein lies the rub, doesn't it? Um, so, so one of the things we talk about in peace journalism class, and my contention is, is that that there's no such thing as as objectivity. Uh, yes, I think that it's a, a laudable goal that we should strive to be as objective as we can when we're reporting. But I I think that there are times, for me at least, there have been times where uh, my what I consider to be my ethical responsibilities have overshadowed what I would consider to be my journalistic responsibilities. Park University professor Stephen Youngblood. You can hear our complete conversation with him on our website, and we have a link to his book, too, about his experiences teaching peace journalism workshops in Uganda there as well. That's at peacetalksradio.com. More with our other guests on this topic on Peace Talks Radio, Peace Journalism, when we continue in one minute. 
I'm Paul Ingalls. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Today's topic, peace journalism. Can journalists, by being more mindful of the language that they use and the breadth of people that they talk with, have an impact on reducing conflict instead of maybe inflaming conflict with their reporting choices? Let's continue our conversation now with more from radio producer David Freudberg, who creates and hosts the fine public radio series Humankind. In his 2007 article for Current Newspaper, he called for the establishment of a peace beat at news organizations and took exception to the widespread use of the phrase war on terror introduced by President George W. Bush days after the 9-11-2001 attacks on the U.S. and it was adopted by the media in the years that followed. I guess we as reporters and writers try to pay special attention to the use of language. It's kind of our job to do so. And I remember the first time I heard the phrase war on terror a long time ago. Somehow it hit my ear wrong because it it doesn't really say what it ostensibly means. And so a war on fear would actually mean reassurance. It would mean to calm people down. It would mean to give people a sense of safety. But the way that our leaders and to a great extent our mainstream media have adopted the term war on terror is actually the opposite of that. Um, You can't have a war on terror in any logical sense because war itself is always an experience to terrify. That's the purpose of war. It will terrify. It will intimidate. So what we need is to look at this language. You know, most Americans, when they hear war on terror, probably are in our mind's eye, we flash to 9-11, that that's where the terrorists took their stand. That's where they wrought their uh, evil deeds. And that's the impact that, um, you know, we are living with. But I think it's almost a Orwellian subconscious game playing on the subliminal meanings to talk about this as a war on terror. We need to be more accurate in our use of language because the implications of our use of language really have life or death consequences, especially when it comes to matters of war and peace. What you say makes me think of what's really needed in a way is a war on international ignorance (laughs) because it always seems to me that the pursuit of understanding of terrorist activity seems to hit a ceiling of someone being labeled a terrorist or someone being labeled anti-American in some way. They'll say they're anti-American. That explains it. It's part of the war on terror. Without, I mean, this is the whole question that followed 9-11 that we heard for a while you know, why would they hate us that much? Or why would they hate America so much? Uh, that seemed to dissipate as the weeks rolled past. Uh, I mean, President Jimmy Carter attempted an explanation at this when we talked with him on our show back in 2002. That was the year he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And he said that when any population doesn't get their basic needs met for food, shelter, water, health, safety, that's when they might turn on their own countrymen, their government in a civil war, Or, he said, interestingly, I thought, even turn against faraway success stories like the United States. But this is what 
I feel like is missing in a piece journalism beat discussion. Um, it just doesn't seem to go very far very often. Well, I would add another dimension that should be included when we talk about these issues, and that is the dimension of introspection. Um, there is obviously no doubt that anybody who would, in a calculated way, smash a plane into a tower in New York City or set up a pressure cooker bomb and injure hundreds of people in the Boston area and kill some of them uh, is is a, a sociopathic um, personality uh, who has somehow become detached from appreciating the human consequences of their actions. It's a, it's a great and awful tragedy, and it's kind of incomprehensible to me, frankly. And at the same time, uh, the question is, what is our role? What is my role when there's a dispute that I'm having with somebody? I can easily point the finger at the other person and the abuses that I perceive, but do I pit play a role? Is the United States a participant in the international trafficking in weapons, in the international quest for oil that seems to always be related to so much of our interactions with the Middle East? I think a healthy approach to conflict is to always be looking at oneself in addition to the actions of others to look at our own motives, uh, to look at our own deeds. And that takes courage. It's very hard. It's painful to look in the mirror. Most of us run from it. That's why psychology has this whole concept of denial. But I don't know how we're going to get to a more peaceful world if we don't develop a greater capacity for introspection. And that, of course, is on the individual level, but also at the level of national policy and national behavior. This was a key theme in that uh, speech that I'm sure you're familiar with that President Kennedy gave to American University in June before he was assassinated that fall in the midst of the Cold War. He, he, he asked Americans for that. He said, we have to ask ourselves, we have to do this introspection. But you don't hear it too often. No, I think our society sort of militates against very much introspection. There's a lot of, um, I think people are afraid of it. I think somehow people feel threatened by the challenge of looking in the mirror, but I don't know how personally to grow or improve without doing so. It's an essential step in personal and spiritual growth. And uh, hard as it is, we have to keep trying through many different methods and devices to be looking at ourselves and get honest with ourselves and try to improve ourselves. And nationally, there's a sort of feeling that, well, you have to have bravado where the United States is always the greatest at everything and the biggest at everything and the richest at everything. But actually, it's a much more complex picture. And I think if we want to build a more peaceful world, it has to be based on true friendships and the friendships have to be based on a certain humility. And um, it's only through the ability to be at least somewhat introspective that humility can genuinely arise. I agree. Obviously, 
when you get to this point of the heinous acts being committed, it's very appropriate to label those perpetrators as sociopaths. What I think is difficult for Americans is to recognize that virtually no one is born a sociopath. And that's the point I was making before, is that they, there seems to be a ceiling of inquiry that once you can label someone a sociopath, a monster, how could anybody have done this? And appropriate questions completely and statements to make. But if, if there's not enough curiosity to go back upstream far enough to find out where that person crossed over, because even, I think, in the case of the alleged Boston bombers, that there seemed to be somewhat of a, a normal trajectory for them in terms of trying to achieve whatever it was they were in the United States that somehow went astray. And that's what I feel like is lacking in, in general in Americans' curiosity and American journalism. Well, if you're talking about the fact that we live in an environment, a culture that glorifies violence through our media, through some of our public policies, uh, through the proliferation of weaponry to the tune of, I think the figure I saw is uh, something like 300 million uh, guns in the United States. It's hard to imagine that cumulatively there's not a huge impact of this on uh, impressionable minds. And in a way, all of our minds are impressionable. Um, and so therefore, we have to take some responsibility for the conduct of our society. The, the mystery of how people in the same society may end up either as peace heroes or uh, sociopaths uh, injuring or killing hundreds is certainly beyond my expertise. And whether that's brain chemistry or something genetic or something else, uh, I will leave for others to discern. But my sense is that the environment clearly makes a difference. It's, it's pretty obvious in the raising of children that the environment makes a huge difference. And so I think we need to be more attentive um, and that translates into all kinds of policy options. David Freudberg, producer and host of Humankind on Public Radio. You can hear our whole conversation and find a link to his show's website on our site, peacetalksradio.com. Another goal of the peace journalism training of Park University professor Stephen Youngblood, heard earlier in our program, was to eliminate the use of hate speech to divide sides in elections in places like Uganda. Youngblood said something must be done to prevent the use of the media in the way it was used in Rwanda in the 1990s, touching off the genocide there, and dramatized in the movie Hotel Rwanda in 2004. When people ask me, good listeners, why do I hate all the Tutsi? I say, read our history. The Tutsi were collaborators for the Belgian colonists. They stole our Hutu land. They whipped us. Now they have come back, these Tutsi rebels. They are cockroaches. They are murderers. Rwanda is our Hutu land. We are the majority. They are a minority of traitors and invaders. We will squash their infestation. We will wipe out the RPF rebels. This is RTLM Hutu Power Radio. Stay alert. 
watch your neighbors. Ugandan journalist Gloria Laker, who worked with Stephen Youngblood on the peace journalism training in Uganda, told us via Skype that there had been examples of divisive language in Ugandan radio as well not too long ago. The Ugandan CBS, by the way, to which she refers to here, has of course nothing to do with the American Columbia broadcast system. Yes, we had a similar case for concerning uh, a radio called CBS, and CBS is, um, is a radio based in central Uganda. Uh, it was in September 2009-2010, whereby um, the radio station encouraged communication which is related to hate speech. Uh, the radio, it is in a region for the for the Kabaka. The, the Kabaka in Uganda is the royal tribe. The Kabaka is for the Baganda tribe. So the Baganda are the, it is the biggest uh, royal tribe in uh, central Uganda. So what happened is they have been having long conflict with the government. So it so happened that uh, the Kabaka wanted to visit his subject in a, another part of the region which he, he rules. So it so happened that he was blocked from going there by the government security. And in that process, the reporters and presenters of CBS radio went on here and called upon the Baganda, that is the tribes in Buganda, to, to go and protect their king. To the minds of a local village woman or man, when you say go and protect the Kabaka, what will he or she think of? She will think of carrying... Uh, machetes, she will think of carrying spears, she will think of carrying uh, trees to, you know, defend and protect and fight. So that uh, immediately sent, sent out a wrong signal to the tribes in central Uganda, especially the Baganda, who started, you know, uh, becoming violent and it was really really chaotic so that is one particular example of um, radio um, using hate speech it is a, C a CBS case that is one which I can cite in Uganda it was one of the goals of the peace journalism trainings to simply prevent hate speech in the media and Uganda particularly around recent elections to that point the programs that reached out to hundreds of journalists and media makers over the course of uh, several months seemed mostly successful. Is that not right? Yes, it is true. It is really, really true. It was very, very successful. And do you think the people that were hearing that message, would you say you converted any reporters or DJs that might have uh, participated in that sort of speech before so that they understood how damaging it could be or were you sort of as they say preaching to the choir reporters who sort of understood that that was uh, not good practice i wouldn't want to use the word converting uh what we simply did was to bring the journalist in our classroom in a peace journalism class and uh, some of the journalists i actually selected were from cbs they were our main target simply because we really wanted to find way of communicating to them issues around peace journalism. And they came, and after attending our seminars of, like, say, between three to five days, depending on, you know, where we are training, so when they come and sit in our class, by the time we are closing the seminar, they have understood the need of practicing peace journalism. 
although we had some of the uh, the presenters who work for CBS who up to today still think that they were right to have called upon the Boganda tribe to go and protect the Kabaka, the Kabaka. But we made it clear to them that in a way you are, you are inciting people and that is wrong. It is not peace journalism way of practicing. Um, and we told them that you gave room for the government to close down your radio station for about one year simply because of using that one word that go and protect your kabaka so we told them this was wrong you shouldn't have used such word and at least a good percentage of the former cbs staff understood peace journalism and we kept on we did an evaluation of them we re-invited them and by the end of the peace electoral and development journalism project their minds had changed several of them and they speak uh, peace in a peaceful way so i think we did something good there ugandan journalist gloria laker more of our interview with her and with all of our guests at our website peacetalksradio.com that's peacetalksradio.com where all of the programs in our series are archived dating back to 2002 You can catch our email address there as well, and we'd love to hear your feedback on our shows, your questions, comments, or your own peacemaking stories. You can order CDs there, sign up for a free podcast and newsletter. And it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to help keep Peace Talks Radio on the air. We have our own nonprofit organization, Good Radio Shows Incorporated, that survives apart from your local public radio station, thanks to your support. Any donation to our organization really helps. Find out how at peacetalksradio.com. Support for the program also comes from the Paul Bartlett Ray Peace Prize, the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Good Radio Show's executive director is Nola Daves-Moses. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.